Okay, our reading today is from Micah 6, verses 1 to 16. Listen to what the Lord says. Stand up, plead my case before the mountains. Let the hills hear what you have to say. Hear you mountains, the Lord's accusation. Listen, you everlasting foundations of the earth. For the Lord has a case against his people. He is lodging a charge against Israel. My people, what have I done to you? How have I burdened you? Answer me. I brought you up out of Egypt and redeemed you from the land of slavery. I sent Moses to lead you, also Aaron and Miriam. My people, remember what Balak king of Moab plotted and what Balaam son of Beor answered. Remember your journey from Shittim to Gilgal, that you may know the righteous acts of the Lord. With what shall I come before the Lord and bow down before the exalted God? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with ten thousand rivers of oil? Shall I offer my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? He has shown you, O mortal, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? To act justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. Listen, the Lord is calling to the city and to fear your name is wisdom. Heed the rod and the one who appointed it. Am I still to forget your ill-gotten treasures, you wicked house, and the short ephah which is accursed? Shall I acquit someone with dishonest scales, with a bag of false weights? Your rich people are violent, your inhabitants are liars, and their tongues speak deceitfully. Therefore I have begun to destroy you, to ruin you because of your sins. You will eat but not be satisfied. Your stomach will still be empty. You will store up but save nothing. Because what you save I will give to the sword. You will plant but not harvest. You will press olives but not use the oil. You will crush grapes but not drink the wine. You have observed the statutes of Omri and all the practices of Ahab's house. You have followed their traditions. Therefore, I will give you over to ruin and your people to derision. You will bear the scorn of the nations. This is the word of the Lord. So there's this uh, viral marketing campaign that's going on in the USA at the moment. It's funded by a small group of anonymous billionaires and designed by this kind of viral marketing firm. There's billboards, bus stops, there's merch. The headline in the paper reads, $100 million campaign aims to fix Jesus' brand from followers' damage. 
the campaign director, John Lee, he said, our goal is to give voice to the pent-up energy of like-minded Jesus followers who are ready to reclaim the name of Jesus from those who abuse it to judge and harm and divide people. Another of the leaders said, he gets us is a movement to free the story of Jesus from hypocrites and extremists. They took this approach because the, the campaign's research found that most Americans like Jesus but are sceptical of Jesus' followers. I think there's a pretty similar culture, a pretty similar vibe here in Australia, right? So what's happened that's led to that? Where people feel positive about people like Jesus, but their perception of Jesus' followers is very different. Well, I think it's, it's largely because of people who have claimed the name of Jesus, but not been like him, right? People who say that they are Christian, but are unchanged by the Christian gospel. It's been a huge problem in the language of this campaign to Jesus' brand, right? Especially during the 20th and the early 21st centuries through the kind of final decades of nominal Christendom in our culture. When people are religious but not transformed, it's a huge problem. And it's the problem of Micah chapter 6. So the question for us is, does our worship of God penetrate deep into our hearts or is it skin deep? Is our worship of God deep in our hearts or skin deep? I wonder if you've ever had this experience, right? Where you get an apple, it's beautiful, it's shiny, it's red. You take a bite, you can feel uh, the sweet juice kind of bursting between your teeth as you take the bite. But as you go further in, you can, you can feel this horrible, pasty, slightly warm mushiness on the inside of the apple. Right? And you know that when you pull back and look down, you're going to be horrified by the brown, rotten core that you find inside. Have you ever had that experience? It's, it's not good. It's repulsive. Right? And that is the state of God's people in Micah's day. They're like that apple. This is, this is the why of Micah. A shiny veneer on the outside, rotten on the inside. And in this passage, right, maybe you picked this up as you read it, it's full of legal language. So it's a courtroom scene. God's people are in the dock. God is the prosecuting attorney. Have a look at the opening words uh, of God there in, in verse 2. He's saying, Hear me, you mountains. Listen, foundations of the earth. He's calling all the earth as witnesses to his charge against his people. He says, stand up, plead my case before the mountains. Let the hills hear what you have to say. Hear you mountains, the Lord's accusation. Listen, you everlasting foundations of the earth, for the Lord has a case against his people. He is lodging a charge against Israel. God then goes on to remind his people of all he's done for them in verses 3 to 5 there. My people, what have I done to you? How have I burdened you? Answer me. I brought you up out of Egypt. I redeemed you from the land of slavery. I sent Moses and Aaron and Miriam. 
God's heartbroken that after he has cared so much for his people, they're turning their backs on him. He's saying, I did so much for you. I was so faithful to you. I loved you so well. Throughout the kind of second half of the passage from verses 9 to 16, we can see some more of the specific charges that he lays against his people. So he's accusing them of of cheating and stealing, of dishonest business, of violence and oppression, of lying and deceit, of idol worship, of following evil traditions. I was on a jury once for a, a pretty awful crime. And even, I remember, just the the reading of the charges was an experience that that felt like it went forever. By the time they finished reading the charges, there was this kind of devastated hush over the whole courtroom as people felt the weight of those accusations. They knew that if this was true, if these accusations were true, this was an an awful and, and tragic event. And that, that's like the mood here as God lays out his charges. This is really bad for the people of God. God's people have become a people of, of wickedness. God's city that was supposed to be a beacon to the whole world of what it looks like to live with God had become just another den of injustice and corruption and evil. The evil is so deep that it it's becomes systemic. It's lodged itself in the whole people of God. Right? The rulers are corrupt. They're oppressive. They're violent. This uh, picture is the RMS Queen Mary. She was commissioned in 1936. At the time, the biggest ship to ever sail the ocean, twice the tonnage of the Titanic. Originally, she was a luxury cruise liner and then was converted to carry troops across the Atlantic through World War II. And on all those journeys, she became famous for these these beautiful red and black smokestacks that took 800,000 troops back and forth across the Atlantic Ocean on 10,001 crossings. And when they finally retired her, after years and years of journeys, after coats and coats of paint on these smokestacks. They removed them, the smokestacks, for maintenance and refurbishment. But as the crane picked them up and lowered them down onto the wharf, these huge structures crumbled. Layer after layer of shiny red paint had hidden the rusting decay of the steel underneath. The beautiful, famous exteriors of the smokestacks revealed a rusty, crumbly interior. That spoke not not of of power and elegance, but of deterioration and decay. The outward appearance was hiding the inward reality. God wants something better than that for Israel. And he wants something better than that for you and for me. God hates shiny exteriors with rotten cores. God does not desire religious practice, external actions without heart transformation. And so what happens then in the flow of Micah 6, and we'll have a look at at verses 6 to 8 particularly here, have a look in front of you, is Israel starts to respond to this, right? They're in the dock, God's made his accusations, he's laying his charges, 
and they're trying to work out, okay, what can we do? What's enough to please him? They're trying to make a plea deal, right, in this kind of courtroom language. They're trying to calculate how much it will take to satisfy God's anger. And it's a little ambiguous here whether the speaker in verses 6 to 8 is the whole people of God or Micah representing the people of God. But either way, this is communicating the kind of human response to God's devastating accusations. Have a look with me from verse 6. With what shall I come before the Lord and bow down before the exalted God? So the question is, okay, well, what do I do? What, What do I need to pay? What will be enough to get me out of this? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Should I, should I bring him sacrifices, offerings, right? material commitments, stuff? Is that what God needs? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with 10,000 rivers of olive oil? Okay, what, what about bigger sacrifices, more stuff? Is that what it will take to please God? Keeps going. Shall I offer my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? Okay, what about the most precious thing I have, even my own child? If I sacrifice to God the thing that I love more than my own life, would that be enough to turn aside his anger? Would that be enough to show him that I love him? None of them would please God. None of them are what God loves. He's not interested in getting your stuff, even the most precious. These people are doing more and more religious stuff, but that's not what God wants. Right? So if he's not interested in that, if he's not interested in more sacrifices or rituals from his people, then what, what does he desire? What does he want from them? What does he love? Well, verse 8 tells us, He has shown you, O mortal, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? To act justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. There's no thing that you could bring to God which would be enough to make him love you or to prove your love for him. Because it's the gospel, you don't have to. That's not what God asks of us. You don't have to bring enough stuff to make him love you. He loved you before the creation of the world. He loved you long before you took your first breath. He loved you as he took his last breath on the cross to die and then to rise to bring you home to him. He has already shown you his love. He's shown you, O mortal, what is good. He has shown you on the cross and in the empty tomb that he is not a God who wants your stuff. He wants your heart. This verse, verse 8, right, maybe it was familiar. Uh, as you read it, this is one of those verses that makes it onto bumper stickers and posters and church buildings and campaigns. This is a verse that, that is written on the alcove of the, um, the, the, what is it, the alcove of religion in the reading room of the Congressional Library in Washington. 
It's a verse that scholars have showered accolades on, right? One said, this is the centre of all commandments as the prophets understood them. Another said, this is the finest summary of the content of practical religion to be found in the Old Testament. What do you reckon? He has shown you, O mortal, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? To act justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. That is what a transformed life looks like. That's what a life lived in response to God's love looks like. Is that what your life looks like? Let's dig in just for for a moment each on those three parts of this vision of a transformed life. Acting justly, loving mercy, walking humbly with God. So act justly. What, what does that mean? What is justice? What does it mean to be just? Right? Well, the dictionary calls it uh, the quality of equitableness and moral rightness. That's a bit dry and distant for me. Uh, the Bible has a much, a much richer meaning. It carries all kinds of, of, kind of currents through it. It means uh, like the righting of wrongs, the idea of right relationship, of bringing wholeness, of aligning reality to the heart of God. And we love the idea of justice, right? In our culture, justice is a very high value. We want justice for for refugees, justice for victims of violence, justice for women, justice for all kinds of groups. But what does it mean to act justly? It would be easier here if the commandment was to love justice, right? Because that would be more abstract, so it's easier to say yes to that. If we surveyed the room and said, who loves justice? Everyone would put their hand up, right? But if we surveyed the room and said, what are you doing to act justly? We might have a moment of pause. We might have more patchy results. Acting justly makes a more costly demand on us. It's necessarily costly. And and so it is as well to love mercy. The word mercy here is the word hesed. Maybe you've heard that word before. It's kind of one of the big words of the Bible. It's the word that the Bible uses for God's covenant love, his faithful and deep and enduring love. The kids' Bible that I read to Bella calls it God's never stopping, never giving up, unbreaking, always and forever love. That's his hesed love. That's the word that's translated here as as mercy. And like God's justice, God's mercy is costly. It's because of his mercy, his love, that Christ died. And for us, if we would be people of never stopping, never giving up, unbreakable, always and forever love, that would be costly for us too. Act justly, love mercy, walk humbly with your God. To live like this, this kind of justice and mercy is a way of life. It's a walk with God. So we walk humbly with him as we depend on him, as we depend on his power in us to do it. We walk in step with him. We look to him for power and rest and all we need. God doesn't want sacrifices. He doesn't want your stuff. 
He doesn't want a bunch of religious practice. What does he want? What does he love? What does he require? Your heart. Your your transformed life of justice and mercy. Walking humbly with him. So how, how deep does your faith go? Is it skin deep? Is it heart transforming? You might ask it like this. Apart from the times in the week when you were doing your religious stuff, right, when you're coming to church or maybe to Bible study, apart from those periods in each week, would your life look any different if you weren't a Christian? Faith must change us, shape us, transform us in those in-between times. Transform us in those in-between times into people of justice and mercy, people who walk humbly with God. And friends, here's the good news, right? Here's, here's the freedom, here's the release of the gospel. God has made this possible. Though our faith was skin deep, God reached in to our hearts. When we didn't love him, he loved us. God acted justly. God loved mercy. He did it in the person and the work of Jesus, right? The one who perfectly lived out this vision of God for human life. Jesus lived out justice and mercy. He truly walked with God. And then through the cross and the resurrection, he made a way for us to join in that life. His spirit in us empowers us to live the way God calls us to live. That's why this passage is good news and not works. God isn't here giving us a, a standard that he expects of us and then watching to see if we make it. No, 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 not at all. He kneels down to help, to take us by the hand and to lead us through. In his love for us, it's God who changes us, who brings us into this kind of life. So perhaps you're here this afternoon and you don't believe in the God of the Bible or maybe not in any God. If that's you, then my hope is that you'll see from this passage what is in the heart of God, direct from his words. Right, Like that marketing campaign, is whatever its value is, trying to undo helpful and untrue perceptions of God based on perceptions of his followers, I hope that you can assess God today on his own merits from his own words. Right? He is a God of justice and mercy. He is a God who loves us and desires our love in return. He's not one who just wants religious observance or ritualistic obedience from us. And he is a God who would enter our world, die in our place and rise from the dead to make this kind of life possible now and forever. Others of us perhaps are feeling called out by God's word here, seeing the gap between our outward actions, our religious involvement or practice and our inner lives, our hearts. 
Some of us have been living Christian lives like the Queen Mary, shining on the outside, decaying inside. For those of us, know that Micah 6 is not a word of condemnation for you. It is a word of hope. It's an invitation. Jesus went ahead of you to live that perfect life that you can't, that I can't, that nobody can. He did it for you and then he died for you. He rose for you and he sent his spirit for you to give you power for real change. And moving from a kind of surface level religion through to heart transformation will take work. But it will unleash the kind of life to the full that Jesus promises and, and calls us into. It's a life that is so much better. You will only be able to to make that move, to be transformed like that with God's people, with people helping you. So let me encourage you, if that's you today, to talk to someone, to pray with someone. Come and pray with myself or or with one of the other staff after the service or with, with someone here that you know. There are some among us then who who are living genuine, heart-transformed lives of faith. Right? Not perfect lives of faith, of course, but, but growing in our love and knowledge of Jesus and our living for him. Right? For those, let me consider how your life might increasingly be one that matches this vision, one of justice and mercy as you walk humbly with God. These verses are, are rightly often used to promote acts of, of advocacy, of, of charity, of support for vulnerable people. So who are those around you who might be victims of injustice? How might you work to serve, bring justice in the lives of those around you? Who around you is in need of mercy? Because it's, it's those actions that life in the in-between times, that transformed life, which truly and deeply pleases God. That's his desire for you. That's what he loves. As we, as we long to live that kind of life and as we commit ourselves to it, we're going to sing uh, to God. We're going to sing the very words of this passage that we've been singing through our series in Micah. But first... I'll pray for us. So so would you stand uh, and I will pray as we prepare to sing. Please stand. God, thank you that you made a way for us to live the life you call us to. Help each of us, Lord, by the power of your spirit to live lives of justice and mercy as we walk humbly with you. And we pray that as we do, our lives would please you and bring you glory. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.